Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Aaron Poole, an actor you may know from the films This Beautiful City, The Conspiracy, Kaz and Dylan, and The Void, or from the television series Strange Empire or Copper, or, well, he's in a lot of stuff. And he'll be at the Toronto International Film Festival this week with Albert Shin's Clifton Hill, which has its world premiere this Thursday, September 5th at 9pm at the Ryerson Theatre. And then he'll be there again on Sunday, September 8th, as the writer and director of his first short film, Oracle which is screening at 9.30 p.m. at the Scotiabank 14 in Shortcuts Program 6, and again at 9.30 p.m. on Saturday, September 14th in the Scotiabank 10. Aaron was part of the first wave of people I invited onto this podcast, and it's taken this long to get him for an episode because he's ridiculously busy, but I think you'll find it was worth the wait. He picked Heat, Michael Mann's epic 1995 crime drama starring Robert De Niro as a veteran-armed robber looking for the biggest score of his career, and Al Pacino as the LAPD robbery homicide detective who'll do anything to stop him. A complex crime drama with a massive cast and incredible action set pieces, it's probably the zenith of man's career. It's certainly one of the best movies ever produced in the genre, a tense, dense, detailed study of professionals in conflict that sums up everything he had done up until then and executes it perfectly. But you know that. It's Heat. This is someone else's movie. Heat is the American movie that I've seen the most, apart from kids' flicks that I've had to watch with my kid. Right. And I think I'm obsessed with it because it's remained a film that I love like a teenager. So I, 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 there's nothing sophisticated about my love for it. I, I have like relatively adult thoughts about it now. Right, right, right. But, but the way I love it is, is like a kid watching a cops and robbers movie. And I've, I've, I've gone back to it I don't know how many times. And I, I'm never bored of it. And, and it's also the film that I've derived the most inspiration from as an actor in terms of detail of characterization and, and what I ask of directors in terms of the freedom to characterize and to explore dialogue in a scene. So I, I think it just is a touchstone for many reasons. Okay. And when did you first see it? Did you see it in, theatrically? In, in, in 95. Yeah, I saw it at the um, – oh, God, I'm totally bl- – the Uptown. Oh, just around the corner. I saw it too there. I, I saw it there as well. Yeah. I think the first time I saw it was in the Uptown on one of the underneath theaters instead of the big one. And I could tell I wasn't getting the full impact. Right, right. You know what? I don't remember what theater it was in. For those of you who are babies, the yeah. uh, the Uptown was this magnificent old box at Young and Bloor in Toronto. It had a, it had three screens, one giant one and two sl- less giant ones underneath. All three rooms had 70 millimeter capability. All three rooms had fantastic sound. But the Uptown One was a palace. It, it was the first theater that I've been in that had heavily raked seating, what, oh, they, yeah. what we know as stadium style now and we expect from a theatrical yeah, yeah. experience. But it was the only one that I'd ever been in that was heavily raked and whose seats would rumble with the bass. Seeing Matrix there for the first time, like just like it was a visceral theatrical experience. Yeah. Oh, my God. I saw so much there. They had a Midnight series in 1995, actually, and I saw – Alien up there. Oh, yeah, totally. Which was just an exquisite experience. I I watched that movie play the audience. It was one of the first times I've ever had that experience where I knew it so well that I could just watch everyone else fall apart into it. Oh, it's so cool. But Heat is, yeah, Heat would have been a thing to see in that room. Or or anywhere in the uptown. I I think I saw it in the three and it's still, yeah, that final scene at the airport was just the planes flying over. You could sort of feel the directional stuff. And this was 
I think it might have been Dolby Digital, but it was still pretty analog as, yeah. as a movie experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I, I can't remember what theater. I remember walking out and just being filled with the depth of creativity and freedom that the performers seem to have and and struck by the feeling that every single character got their time in the sun. You know, mm. so so many films in this genre um, just use garbage characters to push along exposition and then we're focused on sort of the antagonist and the protagonist. And in this case, there's not a single human being that appears that doesn't get sort of the compassionate gaze that Michael Mann seemed to have for this film in particular. Yeah. And it's it's it still amazes me. I mean, I've, of course, I watched it again this week just in preparation for the conversation. And uh, I watched it with my girlfriend who had never seen it before. And um, How did that go? Oh, she absolutely loves it. Just still talking about it. Um, so, yeah, we're getting married. Uh, oh, <laughs> no, that's nice. <laughs> Overheat. It's nice to share with you know, good news. We're having a heat-themed a wedding. Heat themed wedding. <laughs> That's what, so what are you, completely separated for everything except <laughs> yeah, two minutes? The final, the married, final hand clutch. break out again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have the diner scene, right? I guess yeah. that's the wedding. I guess so. The actual vows. I, I guess so. And then you break out. <laughs> have separate parties. Yeah. One has to go terribly wrong. Yeah. You get back together yeah. to leave for the honeymoon. That's right. At that's right. I told you sense. I was never going back. <laughs> this took a turn. This got dark. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's, um, yeah, it, it is the kind of movie that inspires that sort of awe. I remember, uh, oh, oh, and here's another question. Which version have you watched most recently? Because man has since recut it. Yeah. Because um, he does that to everything. So I own it on every possible medium. Um, what did I, I had to watch it on an old computer, so I watched the DVD, so it would have been the old, the original version. Right. Um, it's almost exactly the same. I mean, I yeah, have what are the Yeah, what are the differences? There's a line of dialogue that got dropped, a couple of different angles. Was it a Diane Venora line of dialogue? I don't think so. Because she has the one. most cumbersome, thematically linked you stuff. You might be, you might be right. I just remember watching it a year ago when I got the Blu-ray, the new mm, Blu-ray, mm-hmm. thinking up, barely recognize any difference. Mm-hmm. It's just the same movie and I like it. Mm-hmm. And then I think the color temperatures are different. Mm. But yeah. that's just, again, you know, like Michael Mann deciding that he wasn't finished mm. 24 years ago and, yeah. and that this must be done. He's, I don't know how many different cuts there are. Last of the Mohicans. Oh, wow. There's at least three. Wow. There's the theatrical cut. There was the DVD cut and then a slight change for the Blu-ray. Wow. A few years later. He just keeps doing it. He just keeps going back. Like Collateral, I think, is exactly the yep. same and Public Enemies, and, and mm. those are on Miami Vice. Uh, no, Miami Vice got an extended cut, too, for, for video. For Yeah, I think that's that's probably right. You'd know better than, than yeah, I. I just remember he added another 10 minutes. He restored the opening sequence. Or something right. Because like the theatrical version opens with them racing through a club, but the film, as, we, as people now know it, mm. starts much earlier than that in the story. Mm. And he just... I, I don't know what you'd want to... I don't know why you'd look at Heat and think, yeah, that could be tweaked a little bit. Because it is really, it does feel like his summation mm-hmm. of all the movies he was doing up until that point. Mm-hmm. All the, all the, I mean, it is. A, the it TV. Is the TV. Yeah. yeah. It's Miami Vice. It's To Live in, oh no, that was freaking. A thief. I, I always do that. Definitely. It's Thief. Yeah. yeah. Manhunter sort of a little bit yep. there. The idea of two people who are perfectly matched. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And also he'd already made it, right? Because it's mm. LA Takedown. There was right. a television movie. Yeah, which I've never seen. It's terrible. Is it? <laughs> it is. It's, is it? What is it? Is it his work or it is, is it the actor's dialogue? It's just, it's dialogue? just an, un, an undercooked version of everything. Right. But what's fascinating is that there are entire chunks. There are complete scenes that are in heat. They are the same, the same dialogue, wow. the same characters. The names wow. are different. But he just, he was scratching at this thing for so mm-hmm. long and the and the TV version just it's 93 minutes or something and it just burns through everything mm. and it doesn't have the scale and the shootout is mm-hmm. like it's just not it's not heat mm-hmm. and once you've seen heat it's like why would anybody want an inferior version of this it's the same response I had when Den of Thieves came out a couple of years right. ago it's like this is heat I get it I understand somebody was arguing just the other day uh, with this whole Gerard Butler renaissance now mm. where we're appreciating his pulpier movies that oh you know if you can't make a new heist movie, you might as well remake Heat because it's the perfect engine. It's like, yeah, it is, but then I can just watch Heat. I could play that. I don't mm-hmm. I don't mind revisiting it. It's very mm-hmm. pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And watching somebody else go through the motions, just unless that person's a genius uh, and and absolutely has that level of insight into the I mean it is it's it's the it's the the refinement of twenty five years of obsessive tendencies. And, and not just his own, but a, cu- a culture's obsession with cops and robbers. Sure. I think, like, you know, we we get the silhouettes that we've come accustomed to of, like, good guys and bad guys all over the place. I mean, you've got sort of the crazy long-haired redneck. You've got the, the, uh, the guy who's come up through the prison system who's now kind of the, um, the, the mastermind of it all and John Voight's character. Right. Um, and, and and then the obvious sort of uh, detective and like chief robber, um, but they they have such nuance and there's a, a, a fatalism and a philosophical rigor that man has for the context of this kind of human drama that that just elevates the whole thing. So like what the heck else are you going to do? It's not just the movie definitely is not just about what happens. It's not sort of, you know, plot oriented, even though it has quite an intricate sort of, you know, it's like three, what is three things they take down the truck, the platinum and the, um, the ultimate bank job. Right. So there's an intricate plot, but it's really, uh, it's, it's the philosophical rigor and this kind of like, a sorrow, a loneliness that is running through it all that makes it, I think, impossible to remake. It's not about what happens. It's it's about how it's told. You can't remake that. I mean, that's this guy's vision. His heartache is yeah. what it feels like every time I watch it. Like, I feel a, 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 both congratulatory towards Michael Mann's genius. I want to shake his hand, but then I also want to hug the guy because there's this, like, this the self-examination that I feel like is coming out. Now, maybe I'm projecting. Well, I certainly am. I haven't <laughs> had the conversation with him. But it, it it feels so connected to the essential question of, like, what if it's all meaningless, you know? Yeah, and, no, who defines morality, who... Yeah. The, the idea that the... Um, I mean, it it is... To, to even describe it as uh, a movie about a cop who's not that great and a robber who's the best... Right. ...is reductive and dumb. right. But it's the way in. It is, yeah. It's yeah. how you get people to. Well, what's so special about this movie? It's like, well, it's the the ideal version of that. It's the yeah. urtext yeah. of the cop and robber movie. You have, uh, it is, it, yeah. I'm oversimplifying it, just talking about it. But, but yeah, you live with these people, and mm. you understand the idea that um, everyone 
in the film, every the only characters we are not supposed to like are the people who aren't good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. And it, the morality of that is irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Wayne Grow, bad person, totally, because he yeah. can't keep his head straight. Because yeah, he, like he shoot, he kill, he murders people. He's yeah, a, he is He's a, a bad murderer. Person. Yeah, but, the, yeah. but all of these guys have shot people. Yeah, and the film just really blows past all that because mm-hmm. we are on side with people who are professional and mm-hmm. can't stand sloppiness or mm-hmm. disrespect mm-hmm. or. Um, People who lack code. Yeah. The, but again, oversimplification, right? Because yeah. it sounds so stupid. Yeah. But all crime is about morality. All mm. crime cinema is about morality. Mm. And who we like and who we dislike are based on characters and the actors playing them. But again, you get Al Pacino as a disaster of an investigator. Just a, he's, a, he's a, a crappy cop. He's a bad father. He's a terrible husband. Uh, and he insists that he's... He needs this focus and it's all a lie. We see right through him well before anybody else does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Macaulay sees through Hannah instantly. And that's that's that perfect balance of De Niro coming back from something like Cape Fear where he went so big and you worried he would ever find his way back and dialing it all down and being like, just being still and, and observational and Pacino just going all over the place because there is no top. Mm-hmm. There is no top to go over. Mm-hmm. He, can, he can't stop himself, and especially not after Scent of a Woman. Exactly right. Yeah. Like you would think that this is how you know, he does. He think he's going to win another Oscar for this? Mm-hmm. Does he think this is it? And then I realized after a couple of years, he's like, no, this is exactly what he's been told to do. Like mm-hmm. this is what man wants. Oh, and I, I mean, I, I, I haven't researched a theory that post Scent of a Woman, Pacino's work goes into his body, so it goes from uh, an idea of characterization right. where he's playing concept to post-sense of a woman where he was a blind man and the the concepts for characterization are now fully in his body. He's exploring in these wides in particular right. and every movie after that uh, almost like a, a clown or bouffant version of the concepts for for the character and, and Hannah is a great example of that. Like the the takedown of um, not the takedown, but the um, interrogation of Albert in the sort of the dog fighting thing. Like, yeah. Give me all you got. Yeah. Give me all you got. And, for, and, and then like also with the, who's uh, Hank Azaria's um, character? Oh, I can't right. remember his name, but he's but Pacino comments on his own ferocity. Yeah. And and I ferocious on yeah, yeah ferocious I don't know you know what yeah. I constantly I feel like he's ad libbing sort of a a, a, a self awareness and I man must have wanted it because it's the perfect contrast to to this monk like De Niro um, character who's what's his name oh um, Neil Macaulay Neil Macaulay yeah right, yeah Macaulay. never yeah, which yeah. is the most generic name too it yeah. doesn't sound cool mm-hmm. it's just it's a guy who's cultivated this sort of he disappears while you're watching him, mm-hmm. right? unless you make him mad. Mm-hmm. And even then, he's going to be professional about it. But he's yeah. he's just going to find you and kill you. I feel like I heard man say that they they chose something monk like for his costume, just the gray suit yeah, yeah. instead of the black, the white shirt, no tie. They just wanted him to be able to like disappear. And and I've also read that in tailing people, um, I, was, I was reading some surveillance nonfiction book, and uh, that gray is is apparently what. You know, people will wear so they can just disappear into yeah. the background, which I guess makes sense. Well, I mean, like in a place like Manhattan or L.A. where the buildings are all just concrete, yeah, mm. of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You just – you would you would chameleon yourself into it. You'd yeah. just disappear. Yeah. But the idea of Macaulay as, as an ascetic, like someone who yeah. – what's the line? Never have anything you can't drop in 30 seconds, seconds before the heat yeah. comes through the door. Yeah. It's – 
it's a mantra with him. Yeah. And he betrays himself, as I assume most um, most zealots ultimately do, right? Because they get so far over to one side, they lose track of the of the, the real issues that made them embrace this philosophy in the first place. Mm. And here it's, I mean, it's not about love, it's about revenge. Mm. And we're jumping all over the, <laughs> the structure. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. But the question is, like, because he says it so many times or people say it back to him, the question is always going to be, what is it that he can't drop? Because that's the only thing that defines this person. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we know that's where this is going. Something mm-hmm. is going to come to a head because he's already met his match, even though his match is his opposite. He's, he's unpredictable. He's loud. He's just as dangerous, if not more so. Mm-hmm. And it can't go well because that's the other great thing that man accomplished that doesn't feel like such a big deal now because it's been 25 years, but putting De Niro and Pacino in a movie together brings decades of history, like all of the, all of the 70s, all of American cinema is contained in those two presences mm-hmm. and having them be uh, separated from one another. I remember somebody at the time complaining that they're only on screen together for eight minutes. It's like, yeah, that's the point. You can't contain that space. They have to be making – they're in their own movies ultimately. Mm, interesting. And, yeah. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't – I hadn't – that hadn't crystallized because it, really the the absence of their interaction allows us to project what it could be. Mm-hmm. That's actually one thing that my girlfriend said is that she kept waiting for there to be more after the coffee shop right, scene. Yeah. She kept waiting, waiting, waiting. And and that that anticipation is a material that man can use to drag us through the plotting and to expand on the ideas of of, of fate never fulfilling what we expect in a way, you know, playing on the audience's expectation. And I, I think he does consciously use that. Like he 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 removes interaction between his antagonist and protagonist. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that Pacino is the protagonist, but in fact... I think he's the antagonist. Yeah, I think he is the antagonist, yeah. Because yeah. um, so we open with the crew. Yeah. Like we open with Macaulay. Absolutely, yeah. And I just like him more. I, I absolutely, more I respect him more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I really do respect him more. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. But of so course, each perceives the other as the yeah, antagonist. So you're uh, right too. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, my assumption was obviously based on the fact that there was like a cop and a robber. But but De Niro is the more principled individual. He leaves, even though he's a murderer, he seems to leave less destruction in his wake. Mm-hmm. He does. Oh, he the absolutely impl- does. The implication is, I mean, you know, Pacino's got three marriages and is careless. Um and he doesn't say things like you know. Pacino says, "What he's like? I I have to hang on to my angst. Yeah. I keep it keeps me sharp on the edge where I got to be. Yeah. You know, and that y- y- it's hard to imagine De Niro saying that to justify his actions. Yeah. He, he doesn't want to hurt anybody, so he doesn't keep attachments. He just does what's right for his crew. And yeah, he's definitely the protagonist. Yeah. Interesting loyalty. to identify that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also I think that the way that you delivered Hannah's little lines there, mm. you missed. Well, you didn't miss it. You delivered mm. it the way you would deliver it, which mm. I think is fascinating about mm-hmm. actors. But he does it with a rehearse. Like, this is not the first time he said it. It's right. a riff. He doesn't believe it. Yeah. Like, sharp on the edge, where I got to be. Yeah, like, it's yeah, a, It's yeah. a bebop thing. Yeah. And it's what he does to shut down arguments. Yeah. And, and to get his way. Interesting and that you've interpreted that. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. Well, because so much of his work, is mm. uh, not Pacino's work, but Hannah's work, mm-hmm. is performative. And yeah, as you pointed out, he's always commenting on it. He's always mm-hmm. doing it. That I think he just forgets 
which people have heard this before, mm. which is why his marriage is at the point it is now, which is why uh, poor Natalie Portman is mm. so frustrated with him. I mean, you just, you read that instantly in her eyes. She's sick of him mm. and his attempts to help her. And he's, it's a stepfather situation. It's not great. It's, it's mm. awkward, but she's just, I think she's seen through him well before her mom did. Mm. And why do you think she chooses to go there? Do you, th- uh, in, in the end, why do you think she goes to his hotel room? Because I, I, I always saw her view of him as being the, the best of what she had. Or did you take that action as revenge, like punishing him? I think it's, a, yeah, I think it's an adolescent response. I think it's man writing a kid and not quite knowing how to do it. Maybe, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's not great with children as a, as a writer because right. like, they're not formed. They right. don't have a. They don't have an ethos. Right. So I think he sees her as punishing him. Oh, okay. But it's childish. Right? Yeah. Like it's it's a childish action, and it is unpredictable. It's a good twist yeah. to throw at people. Yeah. But it's also utterly irrelevant to the story. Yeah. And so we don't get to sort of we don't get to understand how Hannah processes it because mm. it's just not important. He has to go to the thing. He has mm-hmm. to do the thing that he's doing. He has to mm-hmm. be the cop. I'd always uh, read it differently that she was, that that he was the closest thing to a safe harbor that she had and that even though she's exhausted by his presence um, and really by all adults, mm-hmm. that this was the safest place that she could go to sort of do a defiant act and know that she would still live. Oh, okay. That, so she's that was, counting on him to find her. That's kind of the way that I'd always kind of projected. That's interesting. Um, but I haven't read anything about it. I haven't listened to the Michael Mann commentary. Again, as I say, like this is, this is the film that best preserves my kind of like innocent enjoyment of films. And so in, in many ways I've avoided the preponderance of material and commentary about it, even though I have the DVD and the Blu-ray and the iTunes specials and stuff like that. Do you know about the, um, one heat minute? Uh, the podcast, podcast, yes. yeah, yeah. I haven't listened to that. I haven't either. I've been. It's one of those things where I think if I started, I would have to listen to the whole thing. And, and I, that is I a don't hell of a lot time of time, dude. But I find it fascinating that yeah. you can do that. There's a handful of things that you could do mm. with heat, and that's a that's a really interesting way. And in. mm-hmm. it's also it just strikes me as self destructive on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Self de- well, just to commit to something like that to do oh, that. God, to, to, yeah. You know, we're going to do 194 episodes. Yeah. To dissect this film, which, I, yes, you can. You absolutely can spend that much time on it. But, I, you know, when I started this, it was just something that I wanted to do because I wanted to keep interviewing people. And I was doing – I found I was doing less of that in the day job. And this is the 242nd episode of it? Wow. I have wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's always different. It At is, least you're not is. focused on the same place. No, exactly. It's always different. It's always uh, – the guest is different. The, the movie is something I have no control over. Like it yeah. is literally me surrendering for an hour to whatever right. conversation we have. And they're always interesting. Yeah. Um, but to do the same film 194 times, I, my head would fall off. I yeah. Think. I mean, you know, in the age of of digital broadcasting and home podcasting, you encounter all kinds of obsessives, and sure. so it it doesn't surprise me that somebody has chosen to do that. I don't know the the man is is he a critic? Uh, Stu Coots, I think, is his name. I'm not sure. Actually. Or if, yeah, I didn't know if he was just sort of like a you know a 
you know, from broadcasting live from his mom's basement kind of thing. Right, yeah. <laughs> or or if yeah, he has credentials. But I think we all start we all start out with the best intentions and all podcasters become hermits in some way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sitting there with the headphones on, cutting and listening and cutting and tweaking. <laughs> Obsessively. Hating your own tone, Going back and recutting the first episode and re releasing <sighs> on the tenth anniversary. I, if I could do that. <laughs> you took can. Me, it took me six hours to make four cuts. <gasps> oh my god. It was the it was nightmare on your first episode yeah and on you it was great none of this is on her but it was just i did not know what i was doing right and it took so long that the the learning curve on editing software i just i don't know how anyone starts i know how i got it now now mm-hmm. it takes me maybe 10 minutes more than the episode's running time to actually cut wow great yeah i've got i mean it's easy now it's yeah. second nature and i'm about to ruin that by trying a new program but um <laughs> yeah it's the, the starting point, the, the, the barriers to entry are small but also incredibly intimidating. Mm-hmm. That said, podcasts are fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to I need to listen to more. Yes, I, I need to. I really need to stop reading. <laughs> That's what they want. <laughs> it is what they want. I just I'm trying to figure out how heat. I mean, I, I I know how heat generates a podcast. It's it's so it's it's rich enough. It's dense enough that yeah, as you say, everybody has. Some characterization. The only ones who don't are people the film doesn't want to spend any time with, mm. have contempt, has contempt for. The, who do you uh, feel those are? Well, Wingro yeah. and, and you know secondary characters, the people who are tertiary characters, the people who are at the dogfighting ring, mm-hmm. people who wander by. But mm-hmm. even that, even the woman that Tom Sizemore takes hostage gets a moment to be a person. Right? Oh, she yeah, is the child, rather the child, yeah, it's the yeah. mother who we see the child through. Like, yeah, it's the reaction of the woman, but yeah, it is. Like we know their story mm-hmm. in that split second because they're not just bystanders. No, and 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 man chooses deliberately to give these moments of of at least human texture, even to Wayne Grow. Wayne Grow is one of my all time favorite movie characters. Okay, he is. He was given freedom in performance. Uh, I actually don't know the, any of the guy's other work. Um, there's when we first see him, he, the way he taps the empty cup for the refill, the way he grabs the uh, tractor trailer door and swings up uh, into the seat beside Sizemore. There's, um, there's a, a like a, a bombast that he just a swagger that he embraces. That even though he is the film's most villainous character, him or Van Zant. Um, kind of opposite ends of a spectrum of violence there, like the yeah. kind of white collar and the blue collar Yeah, he's more killer. of the inciting incident, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. It's, it's the bad choice that dooms everything. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, so even though he has that darkness and his silhouette gives off that intention, uh, he's he's allowed to, to be playful. And we can see the kind of guy that he could have been. Um, you know, the fact that they've... He plays a lot with class, with dialect, mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it's still very much kind of like a East, white East Coast male look on the on sort of class in America. Um, but he plays with dialect. He plays with gender in terms of um, who gets what rights in these social circles. Right. And Wayne Grow's sort of vaguely Southern um, neglect that you could imagine him suffering um, – is is a, I, I think a, an important part of, of how this guy could have become so fucked up. Um, and then the, the utter terror that you see on his face when he eventually does sort of lift his, his 
gaze and look into De Niro's eyes before he gets the double tap in the sternum is it, it has a pathos. There's yeah. a moment of genuine fear there and it isn't, uh, it isn't something that you would see in a typical cops and robbers movie and I think that that's what makes Heat like an ele- elevated genre but also just a great fucking drama, like yeah. a great film. Well, I kept thinking of how it plays out versus um, – because I rewatched Zodiac a little while ago and that mm. got me thinking about Dirty Harry and the way mm. that cop films were – were created in the 70s. In then, and, yeah. You know how Andrew Robinson is this sniveling monster begging for his life, this mm-hmm. total coward mm-hmm. uh, who's barely even human by the end of the film. He's just not seen that way. Mm-hmm. And there is no, like, there's no question who the good guy is. And even though Dirty Harry is sort of anti-fascist right. or at least aware of the fascist tendencies in its character, it's not really giving us a fair fight between the you know, order and chaos mm. that, that it's supposed to be about because their guy, Scorpio, is such mm. a, a complete demon. Mm-hmm. He's not human. He, he, he's a lunatic. do whatever it takes. Just yeah. kill him, put him down like a mad dog. And there's none of that in Heat. At no point does anyone write anybody off as an animal. Nope. There's none of that, um, there's none of that monologuing that, you know, like, you don't know what I'm doing. Nope. There's, there's no... Um, I, I was always surprised when Christopher Nolan said he he referenced Heat for the Dark Knight because oh interesting yeah. oh oh no I wasn't huge, surprised huge. in the opening the opening is well, so seen obvious it, yeah yeah, yeah. But it struck me as a weird way into a character like the Joker because that gotcha. was when he he said that the bank heist and the um, the crime stuff all the stuff mm. that that Heath Ledger participates in in the mm. film he said he modeled that on Heat because mm. he wanted the tension and the intelligence mm. and I get that but at the same time it's such a weird leap to see. Batman versus the Joker and then think, oh, you know what would work? Heat. Heat would, heat would be mm. a good map for this mm-hmm. because it's so clear that the Joker – and maybe that's the big reveal of, of The Dark Knight is that he – you know, he says he doesn't have a plan, but of course he does. He just mm-hmm. wants chaos, but he wants to hurt as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, – there's never any question as to his – you know, like the madness of the Joker is just a – it's a mask. It's a disguise. He mm-hmm. just wants to hurt people. And nobody wants that in Heat. That's the thing that struck me. It's like heat is purely mercantile. It's all about business. It's all about money. It's all about not getting caught. It's about professionalism, right, in a way that Batman movies aren't. But it's just such a a core value of man. He likes watching people do their jobs. He likes watching the the pleasure people take in a job well Mm -hmm. done. And the self-respect is more important than the respect of other people. Mm -hmm. You know, Vincent Hanna thinks – incredibly well of himself, mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. but the people around him can't stand him. Mm-hmm. And then Neil McCauley, who doesn't try to be respected, but will, you know, put you down if you get in his way, that's that's the sort of ideal criminal, I think, that, that man has been making movies about over and over mm-hmm. and over again. People who are the best at what they do, even if what they do is completely illegal and, and damaging and destructive. Well, in that, I think I can see the connection between like Batman, Joker, Macaulay, Hannah, because I, I think that the point at which the these individual men touch their their vocation or their passion is is the area of interest for both those films. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's the, uh, Sizemore's character says, the act, for me, the action is the juice. And I think that that's also the juice of both those films, Dark Knight and Heat, is that that we see people pushing everything else in their lives aside in order to become and to pursue that action. And 
what it is, what is it that they lose? What is it that they're uh, forced to sacrifice in, in that pursuit is, is what pulls us through the events. Um, but it's, it's the engine. And I think that that's a big part of why both the films, but he in particular has, has retained a special place since 95. Mm-hmm. I think that's why people are still talking about it. It, um, it, uh, it's, it's far elevated past a genre of like cops and robbers. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because, and I think he, not in quite a self-conscious way as, as Pacino, man comments on his, on, on his story by, by continually adding these, these, um, shots that suggest a larger sort of fate-filled chaotic context. You get when Wayne Grow, when Pacino looks down and back at Wayne Grow on the ground and but Wayne Grow has disappeared in the first act. He looks off into the darkened uh, parking lot and, and you just see sort of like Wayne, uh, rain washing sort of the pavement. You get this sense of just like loss and emptiness and then he goes home to a place that looks like it's in Malibu and, um, you know, it's silent except for the waves. And again, like he depicts these locations that are, um, you know, symmetrical in shape but mm-hmm. add this this the sense of a kind of a, a dread-filled uh, world in which these people are toiling away most likely – in sort of futile effort. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the world is angry in this movie. It really it's is big and black and scary. It's nearing the end. It's nearing the end. And, and I mean, it's interesting. It's 95, right? So it's the end of the millennium. And I, in, in many ways, the, the, you know, nothing adds up to anything, um, was was really starting to crystallize around that time, mm-hmm. and I think we, you know it's we're, we're feeling the effects of it more and more, and in, in the type of culture that we're consuming, I think now we're moving more into like a Joker phase, yeah. where people are just setting shit on fire because they don't know what else to do. Yeah. They're they're not exploring the impulse; they're just they're no, just doing it. It's acting out, like pure nihilism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but Heat is quite thoughtful in its in its examination of like going for what we want at all costs. And it's principled, but it may not always be uh, altruistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even the, even the nice moments, and I was going to say the bits of humanity we see are, are scarred because the relationship, I didn't, we haven't even mentioned Val Kilmer and Ashley Judd who have an entire movie to themselves. It's incredible. In that story. Yeah. And it's, it's not a good relationship. No. Like they're consumed with love for one another. And Obsession. Just, yeah. And they're yeah. destroying each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's abusive in so many ways. I mean, he's yeah, he's a gambler. She doesn't seem to have any faults except for the fact that she has an obsessive love for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's got a guy on the side, uh, but Jesus, I mean, look at, the guy, look at her husband. Yeah. I think she's looking for a way out, right, for her and her son. And um, but it is, it's really interesting how they're able to find each other in the end, and that like. That is one of the most incredible gestures, just that little like, no, it's not safe thing that she does with her hand and that that look that they give each other. I love what man does with matching closes um, all throughout the film, but that is one of the best, like yeah. just her centered and then him centered. And he, of course, turns around and asks, you know, for directions from some basketball players, just like this 
beautiful, lonely, tragic end to that love story, that love subplot. Yeah. Um, and it's complex in the best way, which is that you really shouldn't root for them to be together. No. Nah. But the actors sell it. I mean, yep. they completely sell it. And Kilmer, yeah. Kilmer can be, you know, a weird, eccentric, recessive actor, but mm-hmm. he just, he puts it on that moment where his face just cracks. Oh, man. It's heartbreaking. It's one of the yeah. best things I've ever seen him do. And it's yeah. just, uh, yeah. He's, Start to finish, I, his work in this film is is incredible. Ashley Judd, I'm hot and cold depending on the on when I happen to be watching the film. The women are given the most difficult dialogue yeah. in in Heat. Uh, I mean, God, Diane Venora is only speaking the theme. Uh, what you, you? Oh God, what, what if one of her lines is? You search for the signs of life sifting through the detritus or detritus yeah, yeah like it, it's it i, I yeah, wish i could quote it but it's, it's not even didactic i don't no. know how you would describe it it's the text it's yeah. just like yeah i found this business card that tells me everything about this movie that i'm in i'm going to read it right exactly now. she does her best like it's yeah. not it's not a bad performance but no no you can it's see great. her doing the lifting a lot yeah. of times yeah yeah, yeah. i think she has one other line so i'm 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 stoned on grass and Prozac, but <laughs> oh, that's right. don't don't listen to me. I'm stoned on grass and yeah, Prozac. Yeah, yeah, which is it's terrible. Sure. But she's excellent in it. I mean, uh, their lovemaking that opens their story is incredible. Like it feels the most sort of husband wife connected, um, non exploitive. Yeah, it feels gaze. like we've wandered in. Yeah, like we shouldn't. We sh- we feel briefly uncomfortable. We shouldn't. Be yeah, there. we don't know who these people are. What's going on? Yeah. It's 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 always it's always stayed with me, hmm. and not in like a nine and a half weeks way. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> well, I'm just trying to think of like Michael Mann is again like he's not good with sex. He's he's. I'm trying to think what else. I, well, I'm thinking a, there's a terrible shower scene in uh, Miami Vice, the film. There, yeah. yeah. Oh God, that's right. Like, <laughs> beefy Colin Farrell stuff that just doesn't. Like, digital video was not kind to him. No. But uh, but I'm thinking like, have you seen The Keep? His first Mm-mm. film. Mm-mm. There is a spectacularly wrong-headed sex scene between Scott Glenn and Alberta Watson. Oh, wow. I was, it was 1983, so I was 14 when it came out, and I went to see that movie twice. But uh, I don't think I would like to see Scott Glenn in any sexual situation. He was in shape. I will say that much for him. Oh, I remember Uh, the him in... Right after the right stuff, he's been... Right, yeah, yeah. But it is just like, it's weird and alien and creepy, and he's got purple eyes, and there's this whole thing going on, and I can't even explain it to you. Wow. Um, But it is... And it's synth, you know, like Tangerine Dream score. It's mm. like full Michael Mann. And it's just, it derails the film so spectacularly that both times I saw it, the audience was just, you could feel people just go, um, uh, this isn't <laughs> working, right? Like, this isn't working for anybody. It's a, this is a monster movie. Why is this happening? Right. And ever since then, I mean, Manhunter has a texture, a sort of a sensual texture. It's not expressed sexually, but... Mm. The, you know, the scene with Joan Allen and the tiger, mm. it's just, it's, it's powerful and, and, and human in a way mm. that his stuff usually isn't. And then the, I mean, uh, so much of the last of the Mohicans coasts on Daniel Day-Lewis's chest, you know, for sexual mm-hmm. appeal, <clears throat> but not necessarily as a sexual being. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's far too elevated as a character he's like almost a superhero in that way he doesn't mm-hmm. interact with people the same way mm-hmm. so it's the swooning promise of romance mm. heat is yeah much more functional about sex and love and, and all of the things that come into play 
even um, even Macaulay, well, I'm not going to remember um, Juliana Margulies' character's name, but his relationship with her is uh, he and uh, De Niro and Macaulay. And Juliana Margulies. Oh, Amy Brenner. Amy Brenner. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, no, but I'm totally. This is this is Tom Sizemore and Michael Madsen all over again. <laughs> totally. You should leave that. You got to leave it. it. <laughs> so before we started running. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was explaining to Aaron that uh, heat is also the source of one of my worst journalistic mistakes. As a writer, I <laughs> misidentified Tom Sizemore as Michael Madsen in a piece on heat, and it went past two editors, and it went through, and to this day I am shamed. But in my defense, in 1995, they were the same person. <laughs> That's right. And I've, the really embarrassing thing is I've met them both. They, well, yeah, but did Brennan, you ever – you didn't mention the no, faux pas. No, both times it predated. Oh, good, uh, good, Madsen good. in 92 for Reservoir Dogs. And I right. Sizemore in 93 for Watch It, I think. Wow, um, cool. Yeah. So I'm cool. Old. I'm old. No, not it's uh, great. But, but yeah. No, but, but Amy, Amy Brennan, Brennan is character. Juliana Marley's. Um, I think it was the hair. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had long curly hair. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember her name too. Edie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so Macaulay and Edie have this relationship that is based entirely on a lie. And yet he's honest with her about everything else. He's warm. It's the only time we ever get a sense of who this guy is. He folds a napkin around that water glass post-sex. That's like, right. Meticulously. Yeah. Because like, he's still – Who is this guy? How did he learn off, that? Right? Yeah. He still knows. Yeah. But he, with her, seems to have some kind of – I mean, it's what we all want from these movies. We want the bad guy to stop being bad. Mm-hmm. We want the criminal to go straight, even if we don't think we do, mm-hmm. because we want a moral universe. We want things to be restored. And he just, it's so wonderful the way De Niro absolutely denies that in everything. Like mm. Every time they talk, it's like, well, you know, I, I, he, he can't even articulate that he wants to stop. Mm. But he kind of does with her. And that, mm-hmm. that becomes so heartbreaking at the end when it turns out, nope, that's not him. He's just that he's been the person we've seen all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hook of his obsession is is just buried so deep that it, it does pull him away from her. Mm-hmm. But what's incredible are these building blocks of still moments that man gives us from the consummate professional in the opening with the armored truck heist, which is just oh, it's beautiful, unbelievable, man, it's unbelievable. To and through the party where you see those two sort of the cop party and the robber parties right, sort of yeah. contrasted and you, you feel his isolation. And then, uh, you know, we, we learned that the cops are surveilling the, the robbers and they're like, who's the loner? Well, we haven't seen him before, yeah. you know, first time. Um, and then he goes home again and he's alone. And, and the, the, the beats of solitude add up to the possibility for love. And that, like, we really do want him to have that opportunity. And he says, like, you know, this is, I don't want to do anything if it's alone and not with you. And and we believe it's possible. And they go through the tunnel, right? Like yeah. that L.A. tunnel. And I don't know what that effect was that they allowed to happen. It almost seemed like it went negative without it get, be, it wasn't, oh, a, yeah, just, it, it was like overexposed, right? Yeah. yeah. So they, they went from dark and then just right into the tunnel. They let it overexpose. And they, that, that use of abstraction to sort of illustrate the, the potential for escape mm-hmm. uh, was just incredible. And then, of course, Wayne Grow. Wingro starts him back on the U-turn, and then yeah. ultimately, yeah, and he just can't. The heat's around the corner, and he can't he drops let it, it go. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. abandons the one thing that 
and if, and of course he does, right? Because he's a po- it's a poetic hero mm-hmm. in a way. That, I, I think that's why I see him as the protagonist. He's the one struggling against his own nature. You're right. Hannah just Hannah's a shark. He's going yeah. for the thing he's going for. Yeah. But no, you're right. He's 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 so well cast. Like De Niro, he doesn't do this anymore, and it just I don't know if it's because he stopped trying. It's because he got busy. He's got other things on his mind. But the sense of a precision in his movements, a precision in his space, the way mm. he uses his own stillness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it joins him to, uh, weirdly enough, to, um, to Midnight Run, mm. to, to uh, Jack the Bounty Hunter. Yeah, I, know, who, I remember the character. Yeah, yeah, who just, who was frustrated and irritated and comically mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. but who was also just, there was something about the way he was lean, he had his hair was cut short, mm-hmm. he just, he, was, he moved with economy, and mm-hmm. that was a comic engine in that film, and here he's doing all the same things. He's a little more manicured. He's got the goatee. He's got the the hair, but he seems to be playing that same sort of thing, which is someone who respects the idea of himself so much that he's incapable of detaching from it. Mm. And in in Midnight Run, it's comic, and here it's tragic. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to put those two things together except that De Niro is just such a consummate performer mm-hmm. that the ticks seem to line up in my head. That's interesting. I wish we all go back to, I haven't seen Midnight Run in, in totally like 10 up. years. Yeah. Yeah. Who directed that? Right Martin in? Brest. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, there's amazing work. I actually had the opportunity to um, geek out uh, over heat with Dennis Haysbert. When oh, we, yeah. were, we were doing something in Toronto together. And uh, just finally one day, I think it was on our third day of working together, had the opportunity to <laughs> say how much I love that arc. Because that arc, I mean, Wayne Grow is my favorite, one of my favorite film characters. But the, um, the arc that Haysbert gets as the grill man, bank job driver... Mm-hmm is, I mean, I think that there's one, two, three beats before the bank robbery that he's given in the entire film. And yeah, you get that. I was going to say, he does not have a lot of screen time, but he makes himself felt. It's incredible. And the, the relationship between him and his wife, and, um, and but, but it is somebody who's really, really working hard to get out of prison and make himself straight. And it's, 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 that arc typifies the the sort of assertion that that there is no small character in heat. Everybody gets their time in the sun. Yeah. It's such a compassionate view of of humans in these circumstances. And it is it, it's always about money and not just about people like trying to get more, but actually trying to survive. Because even Amy Amy Brennerman slash Julia Margolis's <laughs> uh, work, um, you know, do you like it here? De Niro asks her of oh, L.A. She went to, I can't remember where she said she was from, but she went to school at Parsons in New York. He says, do you like it here? She says, mm, not really. I'm just here for the work. And there's this feeling of L.A. being kind of just a place where people go to pursue something. But it's not even that kind of subgenre of like coming to L.A. story. Right. The, city it's, dreams the city of dreams. It's it's this, we kind of have to be here to like kiss the ring or something, yeah. you know. And and there's a fatalism the way she communicates, you know, and she, she asks De Niro, like, you know, do you travel a lot? He says, for work, do you, do you, uh, are you lonely? He says, I am alone and yeah. not lonely. That's one of the greatest lines in the film. There's so many good lines. Like, <laughs> like, give me all you got. Yeah. Uh, for me, the action is the juice. 
uh, and I am alone. I am not lonely, but uh, are are three of the best. Yeah, and he's lying. I mean, I think. Oh, because, he yes, definitely. Because again, his his covering thing is about denying his own nature. Right? I he completely agree. Even if it's even if he sees that as part of his cover, it's still not true. Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not a functional truth um, that he can express, and you can just read right away how badly he wants this connection. Yeah, he doesn't. He, he doesn't. He wants the connection, but he really doesn't know himself. It's it's too complicated, I think, for him to understand until he spends more time with her and until he is up against the wall with with um, with the cops on his tail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I, they've never been as a crew under so much scrutiny, and and they make that fatal choice to pursue the bank job, even though they know that they're being tailed. That scene with the, the with the crew no, with the crew oh yeah the heist yeah. yeah but but just previous to that when the crew is deciding whether they're going to walk away right. or keep going where you know you touch base with um, Val Kilmer but then Tom Sizemore gets that moment we uh, my girlfriend paused the the flick and she's like what is he doing he's so insecure and incredible and like who is that guy she doesn't know who Sizemore is and. Uh, and he has such vulnerability. He's like, whatever, Neil, I do what you, I do what you, I roll with you. Yeah. And like, it's like, and you know, the guy's like a lamb to the slaughter. Like yeah. in that no, exactly. It's just like the, the whole, the whole group is putting their, their trust in him and he's yeah. never let them down except yeah. for that bad choice before. And then this thing, it's just, it's again, you know, it's not going to go well. Yeah. And we're at the halfway point and why, I remember thinking like, why is this movie three and a quarter hours long? Yeah. What could possibly take up that much space and it's like oh i see we're just going to spend all of our time in it we're going to actually go through stuff moment to moment and feel the time passing mm-hmm. and learn who these people are and get to know them so when mm-hmm. they start getting shot it counts it like it actually matters it's in a way i think it's almost man's answer to tarantino I, absolutely you know, like the year before pulp fiction had come out it was two hours and 30 mm. and it was this whole thing about what these guys do when they're not doing their jobs. Mm. They are when they're not being threatening. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, even though he'd already made this movie with L.A. Takedown and it had been something he'd been banging around in his head for years, I think that was the thing that probably gave him the answer. It's like, no, there is an audience for these long films that dare to subvert the genre or at least approach it, from, if not deconstruct it, at least approach it from another direction and take it apart in a new way. Humanist. Yeah, but, yeah, and to just care about people before they get shot mm-hmm. and then care about them when they get shot and give people, you know, there's absolutely nothing about Sizemore that is noble by the end. No, like oh, he no. dies a terrible death. Absolutely. And an unnecessary one and he takes a hostage and he, you know, he is not a good person. Mm-hmm. But that moment of loyalty and sweetness and it's like, you know what, I trust you to get me through this, that complicates everything. He's a child. Yeah. He's a child of, of, of like a misguided father. And yeah, man, yeah. like your Doesn't heart goes to anything him. anything he does. Nope. But it makes that ending tragic. Yeah. And, you know, you think about any other movie, um, he's just, he's a henchman. Yeah. He doesn't have an agency identity. He doesn't have a soul. Mm-hmm. And to watch this and see how it goes for him and just, you know, like, oh, yeah, he, you don't really enjoy anything. He doesn't enjoy the money. He doesn't, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe the drinking, but there's mm-hmm. no, there's no pleasure. He's just following his father figure mm-hmm. and it gets him killed. Mm-hmm. Is his wife the bleach blonde woman at the party? I think it is yeah, because I think she's, she's here briefly, right? 
you see her at the party and then you see her, I think, watching the TV after he's shot at the heist. So I'm pretty sure that is. Yeah. And, and the casting of the two of them together is a big part of what made me feel, um, you know, sympathy or empathy for him. Mm -hmm. There's just like, well, if she loves him, there's gotta be something going on. It doesn't just, it's not just about the big diamond that he spends. There's just this kind of like high school sweetheart vibe about them. And, and with the bleach blonde hair and the bangs, it wasn't just the period. I felt like there was a, a, subtle class thing they were doing in the design of her character. Mm-hmm. Um, that well, again, the same way Wingro is instant Southerner, right? Like it's absolutely just, you have a few seconds to establish these third level characters. Yeah. Make them count. Yeah. Make them stand out. What's the silhouette? And it's like, okay, we're dropped down into their world. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's incredible. And there was also, um, I was reminded in watching it this week, the moment when Sizemore trips in the fountain coming towards like like away from the bank yeah, towards the, the playground yeah and i i doubt that that was choreographed i feel like that was something that just like got like it did it looked so sloppy that yeah. like it was just a moment they kept and like again man is is allowing for these human fo- foibles to live in his movie because i think he is after a larger view yeah. that sort of human view um oh man spectacular yeah i just find it I find where he's gone kind of frustrating subsequently. Mm-hmm. Um, just things like, well, Collateral's fine, except mm-hmm. that it just goes on a bit long. And, yeah. And Public Enemies, just, I don't get it. I no. tried. I tried so hard. Yeah, I've, I've, tr- I've watched it only twice. Yeah. yeah. I, in the second attempt to understand what I could have sure. missed. Because it does feel like he's trying to do a different version of, like a different meditation on heat. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, it's, again, cops and robbers. But yeah. the most... I just the, his digital obsession seems to undercut any idea of depth or texture because the way he shoots now and the and the choices he makes about the cameras and and we won't even talk about Black Hat no uh, God, no but which again recut a bunch mm-hmm. of times but um, he just insists on taking this this approach to his storytelling now that makes me feel like I'm watching the cheapest version of of everything like mm. and. It isn't necessarily a budgetary thing. I'm sure his films are still expensive, mm-hmm. but the, the photography, the, the cinematography in, in Public Enemies just makes it look like people playing dress up in a backyard. It mm-hmm. flattens everything out. It, yeah. It's the same thing I find with high frame rate stuff. Mm-hmm. It just makes it feel artificial. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a deliberate commentary on anything. I mean, he spends so much time making things look real and, and textured in his film work. And, and The Insider, too, is just a perfect example of that, mm-hmm. where he's recreating reality in a completely stylized way that works for the story that he's telling. And again, uh, finds a place for Pacino's wide-ranging performance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel like a redux of heat. It feels like an original Lowell Bergman is a different person and a different story. Absolutely. He just expresses frustration loudly. (laughs) Yeah. That's his deal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't feel like self-parody. And and the, the later stuff has just become... Retready and, and and Heat is in a way a retread of LA Takedown. It's a or a different iteration of it. But I just I find it right now watching it feels like you're watching the peak, right? The zenith before all the affectations started to become habits and and work against the drama that he's delivering. Are you talking about Man or uh, Pacino? Man, well, actually, yeah, yeah. both, both. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what's interesting for Man is that he's never been shy to work on things that are 
commercial and, you know, experiment. And he's always clearly working at things Mm -hmm. and and like learning about the subject and technique. So my – I reserve judgments because he made heat. So who the heck knows what this – what Black Hat and Public Enemies may contribute to before his career is over. I mean I can say in a vacuum I like neither of those films. Um, But I'm curious what could come of the material. And I agree especially that the digital medium alienates me from the the very detail that he – hopes might invite me mm. or it seems he would hope yeah, yeah, might yeah. invite me. I mean he just works on these gorgeous compositions and yeah. beautiful, beautiful imagery and now he's just working away from that yeah. um, as though it's I, – I just think about, yeah, the way the windows are lined up in mm-hmm. heat, you know, those those long stark shots of glass mm-hmm. wherever, wherever they are, there's mm-hmm. always something and the way that they – speak to, if not isolation, then at least compartmentalization that's mm-hmm. going on in, in everybody's lives to mm-hmm. do what they do. And then there's nothing, there's no visual language in his, in his more recent work. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens and, and, looks, and it looks watery because that's the thing he likes about digital apparently. He, really? Well, it's, I mean, you don't have to shoot like that anymore. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many different cameras and so many different processes. But both Black Hat and... Um, Collateral has a little of it, but not too much, because I think he was still trying to do a more film-like. Project. He seemed to be, yeah, yeah. But Black Hat and Public Enemies both have this sort of liquid flyweight camera thing going on. Mm. It just doesn't feel like a movie to me. It just mm-hmm. feels like somebody making a video in their uh, spare mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it feels like like a BBC uh, documentary special. Mm. The look of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. But yeah, you're right. I still keep going back because I'm. I'm hoping he can figure out whatever it is and that he's trying to do and, and express it in a way that I connect to. I feel like I heard something about a heat project with man and Apple. Do you have you does that ring a bell? No. Yeah. I I wonder what you could do. I mean, it's not like a, he could you know, with it with any other I mean, any other format of this. You, it's not like he would I mean, do you think he would want to make a limited series out of it, retell the story again in some way? I mean, at, you even? at this point, I mean, I think there's just such a huge drive for what they call noisy projects, you know, cross-platform yeah. promotional things that uh, the money that he would make would probably be incentive enough. And the film is still going to be the film. Sure. It's a friggin' masterpiece. And, you know, may as well just, you know, stay alive for one last bank job. <laughs> All right. Well, to that end, who would you cast? Like, who is oh, even God. who you'd need because you would need something that is you'd need a young enough pairing of actors to make it attractive as a production, right? Like, they'd have to be in their forties at the most. Yeah, definitely. If you're doing it for a modern audience, and they'd need to be oh, Gosling and Timberlake. Timberlake? Well, they were in the Mickey Mouse Club together. <laughs> So they have history. I'm just trying to come up with a reason. I think Justin Timberlake would probably be a, would have a lot of fun as Vincent. I, I think so too. I don't. I don't. You know, with respect, I don't know. <laughs> those are the the folks I would want to see in that role. I was thinking. I always blank on the guy's name from. Um, uh, oh God, the 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 woman who did uh, Winter's Bone just did the In the Woods or the the with the father daughter. Film and that actor is oh. really interesting. I'm blanking on the guy's name. John Hawks? No. no. John Hawks was in Winter's 
bone. But. Yeah, John Hoxha. That's actually kind mm. of an interesting uh, Macaulay. Um, but no. Um, oh God, what's his name? He was in X Men. He had wings as a, like oh, a shitty little uh, Ben Foster. Ben Foster. Oh, that's interesting. Ben Foster might be an interesting Macaulay. If we're if we're going, but is he in his thirties? He's in his thirties, but okay. he still. I mean, you could age him up a little. Yeah. I was um, thinking like uh, because I believe that Michael Shannon should be in everything. Right. <laughs> I would cast him as the entire crew. Right. He would just so play good. all of them so through good. motion capture somehow. It would, yeah. They'd figure it out. <laughs> it's kind of painful to imagine recasting that film, though. Yeah, what's the point? Right? Yeah. Like, he did like it. Like we said, yeah. Those, yeah. those actors are the perfect versions of yeah. those characters. Yeah. There's not a single miscast. Yeah, like even Hank Azaria now having kind of dated as uh, – hasn't dated. Like, it's – he's become a comic – yeah, he's much more known for comedy, but it's still good casting. He he he's fits perfect. into that world. He's perfect in it. He's this sleazy Vegas dude. All the cops, all the guys in the crew, like in the so you've got Wes Studi and Ted Levine as yeah, detectives. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, Ted Levine's opening monologue has a specificity uh, that that you know goes through the crime scene that like I've I've never seen in any film like he's just it's kind of off the cuff but it's communicating the message that he needs to to his lead um it's it's incredible performance yeah i always forget uh, how deep that bench is oh like, man west studio could be the lead in somebody else's movie yeah at that point yeah it's not like there were any there were any actors who subsequently became famous they were all recognizable faces it's not like when you go back and look at recognize oh, galaxy quest Perfect example. Right. Every time you look at them, it's like, oh my God, he's in this or she's in that. I didn't know. Yeah. And um, Heat is just this murderer's row of talent. And it's obviously everybody wanted to work with man and his uh, his methods appealed to them or he roped them all in without telling them how complicated it was going to be. But it's just – it's it's this symphony of small performances and big performances and pieces that move back and forth. And, I, you know, that diner scene is – is mundane in its execution. It really is just a bunch of two shots mm-hmm. and, you know, cutting to whoever's speaking. But it's mesmerizing because by that point, you have not only the expectation that, oh, when they get together, it's going to be so great, but we know who these people are and what they're trying to do with each other. And it just becomes this great moment of after the tension dissipates and you can relax and enjoy the conversation the second time through and just realize, no, this isn't going to end in a firefight or anything. This is just a measured conversation between two people who are being absolutely honest with each other mm-hmm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. Probably either of them has been absolutely honest with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that makes it work as a as a two-hander, even though they don't really exchange any other conversation. Like, they don't talk at the end. They just, mm-hmm. They're just chasing, chasing each other. Yeah. And it's pure movement, and, and they are, the, like, they have become the perfect iteration of the thing they are. Mm-hmm. But that moment, that that eight minutes is just it's beautiful, mm-hmm. and and I did not see that coming from Michael Mann mm. because I, you know, conversation was never his thing. Mm. It was, he was always about terse, simple expression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet, the the way they're talking about their dreams to each other in that diner scene is is done just on the other side of terse expression, yeah. which is, I think, what's so compelling about it. They, they relax with each other to a certain extent, but, but there's a, uh, an efficiency that they're using in talking about their feelings, which, um, which makes me lean in. Yeah. It allows for the length of the scene t- to, to exist, too, I think. The what did they do? Like, courtesy they have for Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's amazing. It's really uh, – and what did they – they shot it like three times or something like that with two cameras. Yeah, just ran through it. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they said it was – I mean, they ran through it over a full day, but then they, they used three different takes, I think he said, in order to sort of cut it together. Um, yeah, there is a little bit of commentary that I've consumed over <laughs> the years. But I'm going to have to go back and see if I've even seen the latest cut now that – you said it. I have yeah. I have my Blu-ray with me. I brought it as a touchstone. Oh, I, I can tell you which one it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it the blue cover or the white cover? Blue. Oh, wait. No, the white cover is the UK version. That's the one that I have. Yeah, that's the original. That's the, the Warner release, right? From 97, 98, one of the first ones. And this is my old DVD. Oh, it's but, nice. Yeah, these, okay. are, these are two of my prized possessions. There was a guy walking through Parkdale last year with a heat T-shirt on that said on the back, for me, action is the juice. <laughs> I was like, where the – did you get that? <laughs> and it was apparently some skate shop manufactured like three or four of them, Great. some local screen printer. Yeah, <laughs> probably I want one. Oh. <laughs> I can't remember if I offered him money for it or not. But Put this into yeah. the universe if you can get one for yourself. So is this not the uh, – that's the theatrical cut. This that's is the, the theatrical version. cut. Yeah. Okay, all right. That's I've... a print source from film and everything. So um, cool. The subsequent release, because Fox, there's this whole tangled thing. A bunch of films went from Warner to Fox. Fox has the rights to Heat now. And they released a new cut last year with a, I think it was a 4K digital restoration. Uh, I picked it up in, in England because it was all region. And it's available here now. It came out just almost a week after I got back. Wow, cool. But it's available and it's not expensive. Great. And it's just a different edit of the film with a new sound mix and, and it looks gorgeous, but I, I hate to say I barely noticed it. If there is anything... I mean, I noticed the differences in the sound mix more than anything else. I'm walking to Bay Street Video and oh, yeah, seeing if they have it. They definitely have it. Great. All right. That's really exciting. So before I let you do that, um, the, the I have the, this... The question is always the same on the podcast. You know, like, is there anything of, of of the movie that's influenced you personally? But I am delighted to ask this because is there anything in this three-hour, 14-minute crime drama that has influenced your directorial debut, a nine-minute short about a young child in a small house? Absolutely nothing except <laughs> for a passion for filmmaking. <laughs> But yeah, no, there's, was, there's I, no techniques that I have stolen from Heat in order to, uh, yeah, il illustrate anxiety in a young child. Because I watched the short and then I got your response. Mm -hmm. You wanted to do this and I'm thinking, if it turns out that there's a, a shot that you borrowed or an instance of, of, of tension that you lifted, because it's, I mean, there's barely any dialogue. There's, um, it's a subjective exploration and it's really compelling, but... Yeah, I didn't pick up a lot of Michael Mann influence. No, no, absolutely not. No, it's just, I mean, Heat is just one of those films that made me love movies. Uh, and and so, you know, 20 years later, uh, here I am trying it. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And were you acting before? Uh, or you saw Heat? Had you already started? Uh, in 95, I had just started. I, I, I moved to Toronto to go to uh, an arts uh, high school. And so I was in arts high school at that point. And, uh, yeah, me and my, my buddy just would go to the uptown all the time. And, I mean, it was Pacino and De Niro appearing together in a scene for the first time. So yeah. I, you know, I had to check it out. And uh, so, yeah, it was one of those things that just kind of, like, fed the furnace. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you want inspiration, there's fewer 
there there are a few things as effective i think as as this the promise of this right the 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 grand statement on american crime drama with the guys from you know, like both godfather movies only yeah never interacting yeah yeah it's true yeah it was really really effective casting throughout but obviously if, if you had two guys if you got these two guys saying yes then you're lucky I wonder what the story was in getting them involved. Do you have you heard anything about no, that? No, I just I always assumed he wrote it for them or with mm. them in mind. Mm-hmm. Something as as seismic as mm-hmm. a pairing, mm-hmm. something like that. Because to to balance it out, like who else would you cast against each other? Even mm-hmm. even in 1995, if you wanted to do that kind of film with this kind of weight, mm-hmm. you can't just you know. Well, one of them is going to be an unknown, and one of them is going to be. Uh, of the, an Oscar-winning mm-hmm. uh, force of nature, mm-hmm. you know, like you can't maybe Duvall, but then that brings you back to The Godfather again. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's you don't you don't get away from that. Mm-hmm. You could do Duvall and Khan. Yeah, I assume you got Khan <laughs> to call them. Actually, yeah. in retrospect, after yeah. it's just like Jimmy, you want to get on this? Yeah, <laughs> help you us know out. Them. <laughs> yeah. But it is such a it's it's such an incredible alchemy of, of putting the two of them in a film and not letting them in, and having them. Um, intersect but not interact until mm-hmm. that diner scene mm-hmm. then again at the end it's just it's you know it's poetic mm-hmm. is the first scene in which we feel them looking at each other outside of the platinum bust when when macaulay sort of yeah, looks towards the sound that he's heard and hannah's like looking into the surveillance camera and you get the matching close-up yeah i think so i think so i think it's the only it's the first time they're like I always wondered if that was some sort of a predator-prey thing. Yeah, But they're yeah. both the predator. And yeah. neither of them knows, they just know they have to focus on this thing. Yeah, and, and and it's photographic on Macaulay, photographic on Hannah, and then they go back to Macaulay and it's a close-up of the infrared yeah. television thing and you get that the negative yeah. view. It's kind of text on subtext, as, again. It's a I little hat, it. but it's great. Because yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like you... You can you can be subtle, and then sometimes you just don't have to be. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean, I think that kind of abstraction in a movie that could be just like, you know, nuts and bolts, cops and robbers, um, is useful because it throws the expectations off somewhat. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us what you're going to do. I mean, that's Macaulay, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to tell you what you're going to do, and he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be perfect and professional. Mm-hmm. And if you mess it up, it's on you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you can't control the mm-hmm. world. You just can't. I, I think that's ultimately, if the, if Michael Mann has a statement of all of his films, that would be it. It's like you are not in control, no matter how refined and how efficient and how determined you are. You're always going to be at the mercy of the people around you and the world around you. Mm-hmm. The 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 universe doesn't care about you. Yeah. Yeah, this idea of of fate, like a number of times in the film, people are like, "This is your choice, yes or no." They're given that moment. They're they're it's in the dialogue at least twice, from what I can remember, and it almost doesn't matter what they choose. The world is still going to sort of sand them down. Um, everyone becomes Venora's yeah. detritus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, In the end, it's just a guy on a tarmac. Yeah. Like two guys clutching each other's hands. One's bleeding out and the other one has lost everything. I mean, that is – that he's just had the big kill. 
Yeah, he won. Yeah. I mean, technically. Yeah. But there's just this, you know, it's over. For, you know, his marriage is likely over. Mm-hmm. His third. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I hope it's not a heat sequel. I was I just, heard. as soon as you thought, as soon as you said yeah. it, it's just like, please don't be about Vincent Hanna. I kind of feel like I, there is something in my head from, you know, reading endless threads on multiple platforms of Michael Mann and Heat doing something else. We'll, yeah. we'll find out what it is. I mean, if the villain is Natalie Portman, you know, grown up and out to prove something, I'm in. I will watch that. Right. In Black Swan, eye makeup. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Why not? It's distinctive. It's an identity. Well, wasn't that Vox? <laughs> that was Vox. They own the rights now. Although, now that I think about it, you know who I'd like to see do this? I would like to see a gender-reversed heat with Natalie Portman and Jennifer Lawrence. Interesting. Just to see where that goes. Right. And it's ridiculous, but it could work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I would even, yeah, I would, gender reverse is interesting. I think I would cast differently. Yeah. Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, Char- Charlize for sure. Um, Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman. Yeah. yeah. Naomi Watts. No, uh, who's the woman in Jesus' Son uh, and in um, Minority Report? I always forget. Oh, Samantha name. Morton. Yeah, Samantha, uh, Samantha okay. Morton uh, as Hannah. Oh, and I was thinking of her as Macaulay. No way, man. Because she's cold. She's, she's got that stillness. But she also has a uh, – oh, sorry. I meant I, – I think I meant – De Niro. Yeah, De Niro. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. it's De Niro. Again, I switched the names and the no uh, yeah the, the actors. Um, and then, yeah, so opposite opposite her, who would be a good one? I, I knew we would get to a point in talking about this film for so long that we'd be playing like nerd games and podcasting. <laughs> I knew it. It's I, I know. I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I love it. Who would you put against Samantha Morton? As Hannah. Who's got the gravity? Yeah. I'll have to test Chastain. It. Chastain's good. She's sort of done it, too, in, uh, in Zero Dark Thirty. Although yeah. she was really more Macaulay-esque in that one. Yeah, she was. She was really good in that. Yeah, she's um, great in almost everything. Oh, Rebecca Hall? Oh, she'd be good. But maybe in the reverse? She's not cast well. I could see her playing the frustration. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. See, this is the problem. <laughs> now it, it, it takes the momentum out of the conversation. Yeah, I know. It's like, oh, I want to keep your I know. I know. Again. It's like this is when you order another round. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you ever done like a beer-laden uh, oh, version of the podcast? No. God, no. that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> it would be great to do it, but it would be terrible for anyone listening. Right, yeah. You, know, like, you, you want right. to be part of the party. You don't want it's to true. Be yeah, you'd be listening. Yeah, 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 like drunk history. All right, we'll take this to Twitter. If people have suggestions, please throw them at Simcast. And your Twitter handle was? Aaron's Ghost. Aaron's Ghost. So uh, we're um, – this is going to be out there forever. So every three weeks or so, we'll just check our accounts and see <laughs> some new suggestion. <laughs> but uh, I'm up for it. I'm willing, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to invest myself in this. Same, same. <laughs> My thanks to Aaron Poole, who's going to be all over the Toronto International Film Festival for the next two weeks. You'll find him at the world premiere of Albert Shin's Clifton Hill this Thursday, September 5th at 9 p.m. at the Ryerson Theatre. And then on Sunday, September 8th, he'll present the world premiere of his own short film, Oracle, at 9.30 p.m. at the Scotiabank 14 in Shortcuts Program 6. And then he'll do it again on Saturday, September 14th at 9.30 p.m. at the Scotiabank 10. Go see Oracle. It's very good.
You can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron's Ghost, all one word, A-A-R-O-N-S-G-H-O-S-T. And you can find Heat on Blu-ray and DVD in that new cut I mentioned from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. Aaron did buy it at Bay Street Video like 15 minutes after we recorded this episode, just like he said he would. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. I won't have time this week because of the festival, but if you hear something good, please tweet it at me so I don't miss out. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.